0: Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Now that's I don't know if you've skipped ahead, but plot spoiler, we're 26 is just two chapters away from the end of the book of Acts. And we're in this particular place in the book of Acts where there's a lot of repetition. And so I thought we'd take just a quick moment to discuss kind of why the book of Acts is shaped the way it is and what the Lord might have done in his inspiration of this book through Luke. And one of the things you can kind of notice if you, if you think about it from the 30,000-foot view is that the book of Acts begins with a group of friends gathered in a room, in that case, the upper room, and it ends with a group of friends gathered in a room. Because at the end of Acts, we see Paul in Rome, in a room he rented where his friends would visit him and come in and out freely, it says. So what one of the things you can trace is, is the advancement of the gospel. Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Acts that he wanted his disciples to bring the gospel not only to Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts. And what you see is, is that you know, it, it all begins with a group of people gathered in a room in Jerusalem, and the book ends with Christians gathered in a room in Rome. So the gospel has been advanced. Another pattern you see in the book of Acts is the consistency of accusation. So the basic idea here is that as the gospel advances, the devil accuses. And that's one of the main themes we see in these ending chapters in the book of Acts. Beginning in, say, chapter 21 of Acts, we see this theme really highlighted, that as the gospel advances. The devil accuses. And we, we get to the point in Acts 21 where we begin to see Paul just only, only doing one thing, and that is making yet another defense for the gospel, making another defense of his ministry. Five times from Acts 21 to 26, Paul makes a defense to a particular crowd uh, against some accusation. So in chapter 21, he makes a defense to the mob in the temple. In chapter 22, 23, he makes a defense to the Sanhedrin. In chapter 24, 25, it's Felix, and then it's Festus, and then it's Herod Agrippa. And we'll look today at his defense before Herod Agrippa. Now, all of this actually means something important to you, and that is because this truth that as the gospel advances, accusations from the devil increase, that really is important for you to understand because the gospel is advancing both in you and hopefully through you if you're obedient to his call. And so you need to kind of have some sense of what to do when accusations increase. And I think one of the first things we should kind of realize is is that accusations are sort of the, the, the devil's main tool, the devil's main weapon. 1 Peter 5, the ladies are studying 1 Peter, We actually just wrapped up that study, and they studied this passage in 1 Peter 5, where it says that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion. And one of the more interesting pieces of that statement is that we often think of that passage suggesting the devil lurking and sneaking around to surprise attack someone. But that's actually not what the text says. The text says that the devil is a roaring lion. It's bluster, it's bluffing, it's barking, it's intimidation. And that's certainly what we do see in the book of Acts. As the gospel is advancing, Satan increases in his accusation. And this is something that we'll all encounter as the gospel advances in us and through us. And to to know that Satan is always behind this is important so that it often flows through humans. But if we study the story of Jesus, for instance, very carefully, we'll see Jesus say that his main opponents, his main accusers, the Pharisees were what? What did Jesus call them? Sons of the devil. So this theme of Satan being behind accusation and that accusation seeking to cease the advancement of the gospel is very important. But then, of course, once you see that it's the devil behind all of it, you still got to figure out, well, what do I do about that? And Revelation 12 tells us that pretty clearly. Revelation 12, 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives, even unto death. And so this is the idea of the message today. What we see with Paul when he gets accused is very often he drops down into testimony mode. And he shares over and over again. When he's in a position where he must defend himself, one of his main tools is to share his testimony. And that's what we're going to see today in Acts 26, Paul dropping down once again into testimony mode to respond to the accusations that have been brought against him and to make his defense. And Paul's testimony, as we'll see in Acts 26, contains at least four ingredients that every good testimony should, should, should contain. And so when the gospel is advancing in you, an accusation arises that says, you know, you're full of it. This is nonsense. You don't, you don't deserve God's love. God doesn't love you. God's not even real. God's a figment of your imagination. When, when the devil either accuses you or accuses God before you, as he did at the very beginning with Eve, you need to know what to do. And one of the things you do is you drop into testimony mode. Or when the, when, you, when you are beginning to, to, to see the gospel advance through you, you're speaking the truth. You're attempting to speak the truth in love. You're, spe- you're attempting to lead people to Christ, and accusations increase. Well, you need to know what to do, and you need to be able to drop into testimony mode. And so today, we're just going to look at what, what is a testimony, and, and how, does it, how, does it, how is it useful in defending oneself against the devil's accusation? And there are four basic ingredients in Paul's testimony that we'll see in our text that I think are true of all of us. And that is, let me just give you all four to begin with. Number one, Christ has seen the worst of me. Number two, he has given me his grace. Number three, he will use and rescue me. Number four, until I see his face. Those are the four main ingredients of a testimony, the kind of testimony that overcomes the great accuser of the brethren. Christ has seen the worst in me. Look at verse nine of Acts 26. Paul drops into testimony mode when he's telling the great Herod Agrippa, I myself, in verse nine, was convinced that I ought to do many things To Damascus, with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. This first point, Christ has seen the worst of me. Look at verse 13 in the text in Acts 26. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Now this, of course, is a physical light. Paul is physically blinded from this physical light but it's very clear that in doing this this way, Jesus intends to show that he sees. This level of light, this level of illumination is essentially a statement both to Paul and to the world that he is the one who sees. And honestly, after the ascension of Jesus, one of the most common representations of Jesus we see in the New Testament is the Jesus who sees. As we see, for instance, in the seven churches In the book of Revelation, I know your works. And so Jesus is shining this massive light of holy insight onto Paul. No one has ever seen Paul as clearly as Christ sees Paul. And this light is a sense, a spotlight that won't allow you to hide under a single shadow. Like it's just this perfect knowing And so one of the parts of our testimony when the accusers come is to say, whatever you see or think you see, let's be clear about something. Christ has shown his holy spotlight on me and he knows the worst of me in a way no one else ever could. And look at verse 14. And when he had all... When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, Paul does share this story quite often. And there are variations in his retelling. He's not reading from a script. He's telling the story each time. But one of the commonalities commonalities to all of his retelling of this story is this phrase from Jesus, why are you persecuting me? This seems to be a key point for Paul. The key point being, not only did Jesus see the worst in him, but the worst in him was that he was, in fact, persecuting Christ himself. Again, in verse 15, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, that's not to say that there weren't human victims, because obviously they were, there were. But this element of the testimony, Jesus has seen the worst in me, is he knows the darkest, darkest, darkest. And that darkest is ultimately against him. So what we're telling our accusers as we share this first point of our testimony is, you see but a fraction of the darkness that is really in me. Christ has seen it all. And the worst thing I've ever done is not to offend you, dear accuser. The worst thing I've ever done, and not, by, not even close, the worst thing I've ever done is to offend the holy God. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about Christ has seen the worst in me. And perhaps you can already see how this begins to take the teeth out of accusation. This first statement, Christ has seen the worst in me, begins to take the teeth out of accusation. Spurgeon said, brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might charge the accusation, uh, change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would still be nearer to the truth. If you think that, if you believe that, you're well on your way to overcoming the accuser of the brethren. You've already taken a big sting out of the potential shame that might be levied at you. The second point, so not only do we have, Christ has seen the worst in me, but point two, he has given me grace. He has given me his grace. The first point lets us know nobody is more offended by sin than God. Nobody is more targeted by our sin than God. David is right in Psalm 51, four, when he says, against you and you only have I sinned so that you are righteous when you judge and condemn. God is the primary victim of every crime, in the sense that he is the most holy and the most offended by every single sin. But when God, and this is, this is so different than the accusations we'll encounter in the world, when God shows us our sin, he often shows us his sympathy as well. When God shows us our sin, he often shows us his sympathy as well. And he does that in the text. He says, Paul It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's it's as if Paul is kicking Jesus repeatedly over and over again in his head. Paul is just kicking Jesus and Jesus is concerned about Paul's foot. It's an amazing thing to encounter a holy God with a perfect spotlight who sees every sin perfectly, and then to hear that God say, oh, this must be really hard on you. Must be really rough to walk in this willful disobedience. It's a beautiful thing, actually, to be accused by God. Because accompanying that accusing is a fatherly kindness that says, boy, aren't you tired of this? Aren't you, aren't you done? This has to be incredibly hard on you. It reminds me of Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. It says, Paul writes, but God, being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So Paul is encountering this electing, matchless, effectual love of Jesus that even in what you would call the worst day of Paul's life, the day where the clarity of his sin is brought to bear, the spotlight is on his sin, and it is clear even on this worst day, he encounters because of God's electing perfect love on Paul he encounters sympathy Angela and I were doing our growing together bible study yesterday morning and we read 1 John 1:9 it says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity and we're sitting there drinking coffee and we kind of both just realized as we were talking that there was a period of time in our lives before Christ when the justice of God was no comfort. Think about that for a minute. If you're not in Christ, the justice of God is not an assuring concept. 1 John 1.9 is brought to you, to the believer, as a source of comfort. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. That justice that now comforts us is only comforting because it is rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so this second point, again, defends the accuser even greater. not, Not only has God seen me at my worst, but he has given me his grace. Even though he himself sees far worse than any of you see and is offended far more, rightly so, than any of you could ever be, he has extended his grace to me. And now two more points. God has seen me at my worst. He has given me his grace. Third point, he will rescue, he will use and rescue me. Verse 16, but rise Jesus continuing to talk to Paul, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The accuser's aim, once again, is always to shut down the gospel's advancement, either internally or externally, either in you or through you. And here we have Paul, again, making a defense once and once once again with his testimony. And a key ingredient of his testimony is that God has chosen him to be a servant and a witness. Now, there are three promises in this section I wanna highlight. And the first one is, only Jesus has the power to hire and fire. Many of you, I know, are fans of the TV show The Office, and there's the classic episode where Jim presents himself as having the authority to hire and fire, and everybody is highly skeptical. There's something extremely healthy about responding to the accusations with just this sincere belief. You know what? It's not up to you. It's not up to you. Only Jesus can hire and fire. As he says in verse 16 to Paul, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you. And over and over again, as Paul deals with the hostility existing in his various churches that he cares for, he is careful to say time and time again, I am an apostle, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. The second promise is that Jesus will keep appearing. Listen to what else he says in verse 16. Uh, As a servant, Jesus says, I'm going to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things. Here's the key things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Second promise is Jesus will keep appearing. Jesus will keep showing up. One of the secret fears of a weary saint is that there won't be the grace for tomorrow that you need when you need it and that all of the spiritual vitality and impactful moments are in the past and that there won't be any of that kind of stuff in the future. And Jesus is telling Paul in his commissioning, you will testify about the things that I have shown you and about the things that I will show you. And there's this promise that we get from the Lord Jesus when we walk with him. This is so much an important part of our testimony. There's this promise that he will keep showing up over and over and over again. I was thinking about the pattern in the Damascus road experience. I was thinking about how in many respects this pattern is something we see over and over again as we walk with Jesus and it's sort of like how many Damascus road experiences do I need? Well, I need one to get saved and about a thousand to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and be delivered safely to him. And what I mean by that is is that the basic three ingredients of the Damascus road experience are number one, a huge delusion that you think is real and are acting upon. So Paul in verse nine says, I was convinced. I was convinced that I should suppress the name of Jesus. So the first ingredient of the Damascus Road experience that you need over and over again, that I need over and over again, is we get stupid ideas in our head that really seem like the truth. The second ingredient is the Lord appears and says, you're wrong. And here's... Who you're hurting in your wrongness. Here's, here's what this lie that you're believing is doing to you, to others, and to me. And the third ingredient is repentance. And the, repentance is just simply just undoing the opposite of what you were doing before. And you can see that in the Damascus Road experience. Paul's delusion, the thing he's wrong about is that he should actively oppress the name of Jesus. He should keep the name of Jesus from being spread, and how does he repent of that false idea? (laughs) He is now like the spreader of the name of Jesus, and so this is something we will go through over and over and over again in our lives. This Damascus road pattern is just a part of walking with Christ. We get stupid ideas. Those stupid ideas cause damage to ourselves, to others, and to Christ. He comes and tells us, hey, you're wrong about this We repent by doing the opposite of what we were doing before. And the blessing is, is that contained in this promise from Jesus to Paul, you will testify about the things that I have shown you and will show you. It's the, I'm going to be with you, and we're going to do this together, and I'm going to show you more tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. And one of the things that accusation tries to convince you is is that you are done, you are cut off, there is no going back, it's over, the Lord has forsaken you. But the promise from Paul in his testimony is, you know what? That's not true. I will be with Christ forever. And if I need a thousand Damascus Road experiences, I'll get them, because he who called me is faithful. And the third promise in this particular section is that Jesus will rescue us in such a way as to advance his purpose. Remember, this is the phrase, he will use and rescue me. And we see in the text that Jesus promises to deliver Paul from his people and from the Gentiles. And other translations, will say, I will rescue you. And then it says, deliver you to who I am sending you. So the idea is, is that, Jesus will actively care for Paul and he will get him out of the trouble that he's in. And in getting him out of the trouble he's in, he will actually remove him and rescue him to the place he's supposed to be next. So it's this incredible promise that we saw last week of God's providential care and the way he advances his purposes through providence. He's like, not only will I get you out of Jerusalem when they're wanting to kill you, I'll deliver you to Rome, which is where I want you to be anyway. There's these beautiful promises of Jesus in this third element of the testimony just promising to use us and to rescue us over and over again. One of the great, I used to read a lot of missionary biographies. And one of the great themes amongst the most courageous men and women in missionary history is they all wind up saying something like what David Livingston said, I think, exactly this way. We are immortal until our work is complete. And again, accusation seeks to instill fear. It seeks to silence because it seeks to say, you can't possibly think you're gonna be okay if you keep going in this direction, if you keep being faithful to Christ. You can't possibly think you're going to be okay. And all of the most courageous, battle-tested men and women of missionary history felt that exact thing probably at a level that none of us could comprehend. And they kept saying, I'm immortal. I'm immortal until my work is done. Jesus is gonna use me until he's done with me and then I'll be with him. So, so far we have Christ has seen the worst of me. He has given me his grace. He will use and rescue me. Last point, until I see his face, there will be a point when the rescuing that God promises will move from circumstantial to eternal. God does one last rescue for every one of his saints. And it's not from one town to the other, but it's from one city to the city whose builder and maker is God. And his last rescue is his best rescue. I want you to think about that for a minute. Is this true for every one of you, even if you are like, Weak sauce evangelist, weak sauce missionary, weak sauce prayer. If you are a saint held in his hands, he will rescue you from death itself. And you will rise with him, be united, and stand face to face with the glory of the universe. And you will, you will be delivered ultimately to him. At the end of the passage, In verse 32, Agrippa turns to Festus and says, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul's gonna be set free. This is the end of every testimony that defeats the accuser. Oh, I'll be free. No, 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 I'll be free. One day the Lord won't, just really rescue me out of this situation and put me into this situation, which will get bad enough and I'll have to be rescued from that situation. And so on. one day that will end. I'll be done island hopping and I'll land in my homeland and I will be with Christ forever. When we study the chapter carefully, we actually see that Paul's testimony is bookended by his favorite theme, which is the resurrection In verses 7 through 8, beginning of his defense to Agrippa, he says, and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. And then he says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? How much did Paul believe in the resurrection? He was astonished by people who thought it was possible not to he was astonished by people who thought the resurrection was an incredible idea. He was so built into the resurrection that he saw those who doubted it as being absurd. And then in verse 22, after he he just presents everything we've seen, he bookends that whole talk with another reference to the resurrection. Verse 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, the first to rise from the dead. This is Paul's whole concept of why it's worth doing what he's doing. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead and that Paul if he was willing to share in the sufferings of Christ, would also share in the resurrection of Christ. He says that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is a firm believer that however his trial ends, it will involve God's deliverance. Either he will wind up next in Rome or in his true home. And the heavier the accusations, friends, this is the incredible thing that God has built into the the system, the experience of Christianity, the heavier the accusations, the harder the hardships, the sweeter the song we get to sing back into the face of the roaring lion. Christ has seen the worst in me, he's given me his grace. He will use and deliver me until I see his face. And you can go through every saint that was the most battered and weather-beaten and opposed and criticized, and you can find there the sweetest songs. And Martin Luther, a man who is not known for sweetness, summarized this whole idea when he said, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. This was Paul's overcoming power to drop down onto a knee and say over and over again, What he knew to be true, that though he was the worst of sinners, he received mercy. At the end of his life, or near the end of his life, he's writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me but all deserted me, may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And again, another promise, Saint. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.